Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 91 of Groove, the No Treble podcast, which you can always find at notreble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. Who are you and what do you do? Hey, I'm Andy Curran. I'm a certified hockey junkie. I founded the rock band Coney Hatch, where I was the bassist and lead vocalist, and went on to many other bands. Probably, Mitch, we might not even have time in this interview for me to list them all, but I'm currently in a very cool project with Alex Lifeson called Envy of None. Having a lot of fun with that. And great to see you, man. I was going to say, you and I have, I would say, an interesting relationship and friendship, meaning we don't really connect all that often, but I feel extremely connected to you. It's crazy. Yeah. I was thinking I, back that we probably met Andy in 1989 or 1990 around, I think, right before the launch of your solo album, which was called Curran. And there was a whole bunch of Canadian hits on that for sure. And then working backwards towards Coney Hatch. But there's been so many intersections over the years between you and I that you're somebody when your name comes up, I'm always like, yeah, I'm friends with Andy. And then I realize, am I? Like, I haven't really spoken to Andy <laughs> in 30 years, maybe. Well, you're right. Our history goes way back. And Coney Hatch played in Montreal so much. And then as you said, with the solo album, I was back there. And I think we, that's definitely when we reconnected. But that period where I refer to it as me jumping over to the dark side when I was over at SRO Management and Anthem Records, we saw each other quite a lot because the guys at Tea Party love you. And Mitch Joel and Montreal visits are synonymous. So um, <laughs> right. it's, it's great to see. But then we'd run into each other at Iron Maiden shows. And you're right. It's just like, hey, man. And we're, I think we're all saying, hey, let's get together for coffee. Right. I, mean, yeah, I don't just, know if we ever did or had, but, but here we are. Yeah. There's a lot to un unpack there. There's the music side and there's the business side. And I think that that's going to make for a great conversation. Anthem Records, correct me if I'm wrong, was owned by Ray Daniels. Ray Daniels, who runs SRO Management, which was primarily known for Rush. Then Ray would expand into, there's a whole bunch of bands I remember for sure in the early 90s that he was tackling. Van Halen would have been. A yes. big one that he took over with Sammy Hagar and there was Gary Sharon. I believe SRO, SRO was doing Extreme too at one That's point. That's correct. Yep. We'll get into the whole thing, but I'm curious about when you got in touch. Because when we talk about SRO and Anthem, to me, it's primarily Ray. This is Ray's thing. Yeah, so how did you right. meet how did you meet Ray? How did you get connected to Ray? Oh, the, oh my God, Mitch, that's a great question. It goes right back to early 80s. And when Coney Hatch, pre-record contract, when Coney Hatch was touring around, we would play a week in many places like the Maples or the Mustache Club. I lost track on how many times we played the Gasworks in Toronto. And I think when people, some of the younger people here at Gasworks, they think of Mike Myers and Wayne's World, but it was actually a real good club. It was a real staple in the toronto market and um to to tell you how the connection with ray daniels starts it actually starts with pi dubois who was writing lyrics for max webster kim, and kim mitchell and, yeah and kim mitchell and pi saw us uh coney hatch at the gasworks and eventually told kim mitchell 
Kim eventually came down to meet us, produced our first demo, which I believe was a five song demo. We borrowed money from my dad at that time and signed a promissory note for 2,500 bucks and went into the studio with Kim. And then Kim offered to take it around to some labels because we knew nobody. We were, too, we were quite young at that point and we were really being mentored and Kim took us under his wing. Kim brought it to Dean Cameron at, uh, at EMI Capital. Sure. And then he brought it to Ray Daniels. And so we had this little mini bidding war between those two companies. And I'll never forget the like collectively Kony Hash thought, well, wait a second, if we sign with Anthem Records, we're we're label mates with Rush. And we also get their manager too. So we thought that was a good sort of kill two birds with one stone. So that's where the relationship goes right wow. to eighty-two when Ray was our manager. Being a musician and then switching over to the business side. It's not easy. And I think you would even admit that a lot of our friends and peers, it's almost like there was too much pride in doing that. And that led to some musicians to going into really interesting careers and others to just never pulling it together. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about when you make the decision to go into the business side, what that was like for you. And then what was the conversation with Ray or was it brought to you? How did it start and what was the job? I know there was an A&R thing at Anthem. Is that how it started? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Your first comment is absolutely correct. I found it a difficult transition. It was something that I thought about for a long time. When you and I spoke off air and I mentioned that I had two daughters when they were quite young, I was starting to question whether I wanted to be on the road that much, to be honest with you, Mitch. And I thought to myself, okay, if I was able to transition into another career, what would be my dream job? And working in the studio and collaborating with artists and just being part of that record making process has always been something that I love. So I thought, hey, maybe an A&R guy would be cool. The timing of this was kind of serendipitous because there's an interesting story that happens here. My last sort of official project was a band called Leisure World that I put together. We had some very early success. We were signed to Artist Direct. And we were taught, there was a song called I'm Dead that was like top 10 in a bunch of different markets in the U.S. And I was lucky enough to have some success in the U.S. with Caramel and with Leisure World. I mean, that so band Caramel was on Geffen. That was, yeah, that was. And both, both those chapters were fairly significant labels that ended up going bankrupt. So here we are with the top 10 single. We get invited out on a tour with Gobsmack and Leisure World were going to be the opening band. So I called the record label and said, hey, can we talk about the, the tour support and everything? And they came back and said, hey, well, A, there's no tour support. B, we're, we're pulling the plug on the label. And C, we'll give you your master back. So I'm like, oh, my God, what do I do? I'm, <laughs> now, now here we are. The song's going up, 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 and the rest of the career is going down. So I ended up calling Ray Daniels, a longtime friend of mine since 82. And we'd struck up a mutual sort of social friendship around hockey. Both of us are hockey junkies. I mentioned that off the top of the show. Yeah. So we would go out to hockey games and keep you know, keep in touch socially. And I asked him for some help. I said, Ray, I'm, I'm, I'm in a real situation here. I have an invitation to go out on the road with Gobsmack and really good slot. Our record is charting in the U.S. And maybe you can call some of your friends in the U.S. for me and, and see if they might want to take the record. I own it now. So he said, let me make a couple calls. He calls me back a couple days later, Mitch, and he said, I've got good news and bad news. The good news, or sorry, the bad news is nobody wants to touch this record. And you're like the girl, the girlfriend that somebody else has already slept with. So all of these record companies are like, okay, 
we can't put our stamp on it. They've been signed by somebody else, blah, blah, blah. And it didn't work world news at this point, right? Which I thought was shocking seeing that we had just been out on the market a couple months. Right. And the song's charting at that point. It's not like, I know. I'm like, I can't believe that. I said, I don't want an advance. I just want somebody to pick the ball up off the field and run with it. And so he, and I said, so that's the bad news. What's the good news? He said, the good news is I want to hire you as our A&R guy at Anthem Records. You've been doing this long enough that I think it's time for you to get off the road. You've got two young daughters, but why don't you come in and talk to me? So we said that this is my favorite part of the conversation. So I go to him, I talk to Ray. We talk about how there was a need for an A&R guy that Rush and the Tea Party. And I think he was courting Stephen Page at the time from Bare Naked Ladies to manage him. So he said, why don't you come on in and be the A&R guy? I think you'd be perfect for it. You have a lot of experience. So I accept the job. We shake on it. I'm getting up to, from the desk. He goes, no, 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 sit down. I got a couple other things to go through. There's some fine tooth stuff on this. I go, okay. So I sit down. He says, number one. You got to put the bass down. He said, you're a rock and roll cockroach. I've never seen anybody get as many record deals, management deals, publishing deals. You have more lawyers than you can shake a stick at. He said, it's not going to be good if you have your career and you're representing a band like the Tea Party. Andy, how would you feel if your manager was out there playing gigs and doing records and doing... So I need you to promise me you're going to focus on Anthem Records and SRO management. So I said... Okay, no problem. He goes, you got to promise me this. No going back out on the road. (laughs) So anyway, so I said, yes. And then I said, what's the other thing? He goes, I'm going to groom you as a manager. And I said, no, no, no. Wait a second here. I did not put my hand up for that. I said, I'm not really interested in babysitting grown adults at this stage. I have my own kids. I know what the management game is like. It's a thankless job, right? And he said to me, no, no, Andy, if you stay with me, you will learn so much. I'm going to groom you as a manager and teach you the chops there. So Mitch, I reluctantly agreed to that. And my God, the stuff that I'd learned on that side of the fence, because I'd always been a, a, the, the artist musician asking for that stuff to go in and ask the manager to do this. So it's very different to be on the other side and very challenging. A lot of the artists that we worked with were very demanding, not in a nasty way, but there's expectations. You know, when you start working with Big Rec, Ian Thornley, the guys at Tea Party, Rush, Stephen Page, these are no slouches. These guys know what they want, so you better be on your game, right? But the difficult part, I will tell you, there were many nights when I was at shows where I'd be standing side stage going, God, I miss that. I miss being up there. But I've never looked back, and I think I learned a lot and made a lot of great friends. And as we said earlier, many times I ran into you in Montreal just there doing business and representing what year was that meeting with Ray? Like, when was that? I'm going to say early 2000s, maybe 2004, 2006, maybe somewhere around there. So I did about 12 to close to 15 years with SRO and Anthem. We'll do some time jumping here, but I'm curious about at what moment in time you actually pick up the bass again, because Coney Hatch decides to become active again. I definitely want to hear the story of Envy of None, Alex Lifeson, and what happens there. Yeah. At what point in that do you go to Ray or are you already gone where you're like, I'm playing bass again? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so full transparency, Mitch, I'm talking to you from my home studio. So I never stopped composing, and ever, through the whole right. time. I was always still writing music for TSN. I wrote a, a, quite a bit of music for them for the NHL on TSN and the reporters and 
off the record. And I enjoyed writing sort of background music and theme music. So that really didn't get in the way and I kept it really quiet. Then I was like a squirrel. I was gathering nuts. And some of these ideas that I was writing date back as far as me working with Ray that ended up on the Envy of None record. I had started that process to just, I don't know, have a, a giant suppository of music, right? Um, and, uh, and that's wrong, the wrong word, suppository. I think it's <laughs> what I'm looking for. But anyway, repository, uh, maybe. Repository, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a different story. That's <laughs> kind of, yeah. Yeah. But anyway, uh, the Coney Hatch reunion that you mentioned during that time, right near the ending of the SRO chapter, that was when we had the opportunity and we were approached by Frontiers Record to do a new Coney Hatch record 30 years later, which is a funny call because. When they called me, I, he, the guy said, we want a new Coney Hatch record. And his name is Serafino. And it was it. And this was like a little, and I tell the story, I've told it a few times, but I think you'll like it. It was like getting a call from the Godfather. And the guy said, and his voice was like, my name is Serafino. And I want to talk to you about making a new Coney Hatch record. Right? So I said, well, look, it, we're not a, an active band. We're weekend warriors. We play a, half a dozen shows a year and we have no music. You need to get me music. Do you understand? <laughs> I want vintage Coney Hatch. I do not want Foo Fighters or Queens of Stone Age. You give me vintage. <laughs> if we do this deal, Andy, I don't want any surprises. Do you understand me? Right? And I was like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, I managed to do that quietly with the guys in Coney. And really, there was no touring at that point. And as the sort of SRO chapter was coming to an end, I started easing back into playing some live shows and recording like for real as opposed to just demos. But for the most part, I kept true to that promise to Ray. Just so that we understand timelines and where things are at, when I think of SRO, obviously the anchor being Rush, Neil Peart very tragically passes away. The band had been talking about that last tour being the last tour. Again, you, you never know. Mm -hmm. Are you still at SRO Anthem at that time or had you already left? Was leaving SRO just because of what happened with Neil and it being quote unquote, the end of Rush, as, as we know it, as a touring and recording band. What's the timing like? Yeah, that timeline, there was a bunch of activity there. I'll tell you a couple sort of pertinent moments for me. And I say this trying to be very humble. I, sure. I, I did that ride with Rush all the way to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with them. They invited me to go to that. So I felt, oh my God, how rewarding is this? These guys are grew up as they were my idols. Now I'm working with them did this amazing body of work where I helped them with the feedback record and introduced them to Nick Raskulinich for the Clockwork Angels and Snakes and Arrows record. Took care of all their endorsements with Gibson and Fender and DW. And we did rock band and Guitar Hero. And I'm sitting at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with those guys going, well, what else is there to do? My God, like this, these guys have hit almost the pinnacle of their career. So I have to be honest with you, right around that time, Mitch, I started thinking about a transition. Okay, maybe it's a time for a change. I've been, I've been here for about 15 years. Then there was rumblings of the record label being bought and the publishing being sold. There was a big company called Olay that came in and bought the label and bought publishing. Okay. I went over as part of the acquisition for a little while and ran the label there, but I could feel the winds of change were happening. During that chapter, while I was at Olay, that's when we learned uh, quietly of Neil's sickness, diagnosis being terminal. And it was quite, it was all kept very hush-hush for about three years. And again, I have to 
say this with all due respect to everybody, I was already plotting a change in the course sure. of, of my career. But all of those pieces together combined with the end of Rush, we knew that Neil was, the passing was going to be imminent. And it just felt like the, the right time for me to make a bunch of changes. It's interesting in timeline because uh, unfortunately, especially if you're in Canada, we were already dealing with what happens after the tragically hip when Gord had passed. Yeah. I had the other Gord on talking about bass playing when he did his solo album. And it's still something that many people want to know about Rush. Will yeah. this band continue with another drummer, multiple drummers, do things here and there? And let's put that aside. It's not really germane to what I want to talk about. But I am curious about you then still stay connected to Ray, to Alex, to Getty. Is it friendship? Is it casual? At what point does this idea of envy of none come out? I know that Alex had, again, what we know is public, at least I know is public, is there's two songs released and Andy's involved. Okay, you know, great, fun, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how does that work when, like you said, you're making a change, you're doing your own thing? Is it just that you're friends and hanging out or was it more professional? Was it personal, professional? What was it? Yeah, it's a little bit of both, Mitch. The friendship was certainly cemented many, many years ago. Ray and I still keep in touch to this day. Getty Lee has helped me throughout my career. You mentioned Caramel and Geffen. When that was all happening, he introduced me to one of the most powerful legal men in the States, Peter Paterno, and helped me with that. And then Alex and I were always talking about golf and tennis. And so there was that there was this friendship there, regardless. But when I went over to Olay, both Getty and Alex asked me if I could continue to babysit their, let's call it endorsement partnerships with Fender and Gibson. I was really the only musician over at SRO Management. So they used to say, Andy, there's a call from somebody and they want to talk about buttons that go ping. And that was the code and stuff. That right. they, they didn't know. What Bring they, the musicians. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I could talk the talk with Fender or Tech 21 or Moog synthesizers. And so they both asked me, look at we, clearly, these guys didn't want to be making calls themselves directly to the company. So I acted as the interim and the go-between. I agreed to do that, Mitch, probably about two and a half, three years ago, with the asterisks on the side that I could chase some of the things that that they that fell off the desk when the band was touring. Because we got so many different rooms right. and opportunities, and you could never fit them in because these guys were on this crazy cycle of recording touring, taking time off, recording, touring, writing, and, and all of these opportunities were just sitting around. So I said, I'll do it, but we got to go chase a couple other opportunities. So we're doing that right now. And I'm having a lot of fun getting an Alex and some new projects are going to come up in what I call the, in the music instrument space, right? Well, Getty did. I mean, we had Getty on the show because he had his amazing bass book and there yes. was a lot of energy around that. And I think a lot of happiness too, because you know people want to hear from these people. I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of fun, like as a musician, again, that's a nerd gear thing for me. So I'm like, okay, we're coming up with some new things. Right. New, new bass new, pedal. Yeah. Yeah. New <laughs> bass pedals or new whatever. Like I can, I'm not at liberty to announce at this stage, but you're going to see a lot of activity from Getty and Alex in the next year to year and a half. Right. That's all happening. The friendship is there. And this is the lightning strikes moment. So during the pandemic, Alex was releasing the Epiphone signature. His guitar, accent. right. Yeah. 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 And so traditionally, for those who don't know this, traditionally there's a bit of a marketing thing that happens. So they go, okay, Alex, we need photos from you. We need a quote. We're going to do an interview. We're going to come to Toronto. And I would be the guy that would arrange all that. Right? 
can't do any of that. Everybody's locked down. So this guitar is... Oh, right, because of the pandemic. Right? Yeah. So, so I'm like, hey, do you want to do a photo session? He's like, no, I'm not doing a photo session. I go, what about a video? Mm, I don't know, but I don't want anybody at my house. Like, we're in complete lockdown in Canada, right? So Alex calls me up and comes up with this amazing idea where he's like, I'm going to write and compose something about my 50-year ride with Gibson when I first went to Kalamazoo and started I bought my first the white ES355 that he plays working now. We all know that guitar. And he said, I'm going to voice it at my studio. Maybe what you can do is we can look into all these old photographs and we'll do a chronological like a montage. Here's, here's Alex with his first guitar. On and on and on. So we do that and we start stitching together this beautiful visual thing and I said, so do you need me to call Anthem Records to license some music? He goes, no, I want to use some of my own music that's never been released before. And I said, man, I think people are going to love that. It's been a, a real, everybody's been on hiatus. So what do you want to do? He said, well, I need you to play bass on it. I've done some, some guide stuff. And listen, for me, that was quite an honor. I jokingly said, for sure. Don't you know any other bass players? Like, uh, there's a guy on speed dial whose initials are GL. How come you're not calling him, right? And he goes, no, I, I think Eddie's writing his book. I need you to do this. So that was the first sort of intersection where I had been their friend and their business associate. And now it was on the other side where he's asking me to play bass. So during that conversation, he said, and maybe I can return the favor one day. So I remember that. And... Fast forward, I told him that I had met Maya Wynn, the vocalist of Beef Nun, and I wanted him to hear it. And would he consider playing guitar on it? And honestly, Mitch, from the minute he and Alfa Nabellini heard Maya's voice, they were in. They said, you have found somebody special. We'd love her. Send it over. And we started sharing files remotely, Pro Tools files, and adding bits and pieces on. And that was the beginning of of Nun. But it wasn't until the Epiphone project that the line was actually crossed. How did you find her? She's 25 years old. She's not from Toronto or suburbia Toronto. She's out of the 416 and 905. Mm -hmm. American, very young. How does that come about? And then also, when you say something like Alex and I really liked her, of course, she's an incredible musician. Yeah. But Alex has to also be thinking, this is the first thing people will hear from me post-Rush Trio. Yeah. This is also a big thing. And I know that many musicians, because we have mutual friends who have had to deal with this, there's a part that goes, I'm going to go in a completely other direction, so there's no link back yeah. to it. And we'll talk about stylistically what's going on sure. with, with Envy of None, but how do you come across this very young, very fresh musician? In my last couple of months at Olay Anthem, I got a call from Robert Ott, the CEO, asking me if I would be kind enough. Actually, it wasn't an ask. He said, I've volunteered you to be a judge for an online talent contest. Uh, voluntold. I, I got it. Yeah. Voluntold, right? So I said, oh, okay. And he goes, it's, you know, please give this guy a call. And, and I don't think it's going to be a lot of heavy lifting. And he was right. So the guy, I called the guy and he said, I'm going to send you 10 songs. Please rate them from one to 10, one being your favorite, 10 being your least favorite. And we're going to pick five winners. And these winners will get some cash and they'll get some studio time and they get a mentoring call from a music industry expert. So we want you to do be a mentor and i said well i never considered myself an expert and that sounds <laughs> like a pretty crappy prize but i'll do it fast forward i arranged a zoom call and it's none other than my win 
And we, and she was 21 at the time. And so I put on my manager hat for that call and I started giving her advice on how to network with other musicians and do this and do that. And and gave her some, try to be, gave her some criticism, gentle criticism about some of the songs that she was writing and one in particular. Solicited feedback, solicited feedback. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, without even breaking a bead during the call, she says, I looked you up on the internet. Could I write with you? And I thought to myself, no pun intended, because we're on this call, this girl's got the balls the size of Montreal. I just like, oh my God. And it was very naive and innocent. And I said, sure. So those ideas that I told you about that I'd been coddling away, which were very unlike Coney Hatch, they were electronic and almost like some of them were industrial, some of them were a little bit 90s and 80s, alternative leaning, very electronic based. I started sending them over to her. And from the get-go, her grasp of melodies and harmony and her lyric writing for a 21-year-old, I was really, really impressed. And so was Alex and Alf. They heard it and said, my God, this girl's like wise beyond her years. So there must be a beauty in that because getting back to my secondary thought about Alex, the music that comes next, you making decisions with Envy of None, there's something really magical about the fact that you're bringing in this 25-year-old-ish American female, more independent, I would say musically, more experimental music that I always say this, this type of music has more air to it. Absolutely. That, that seems to be a great way to record and not have any legacy attached to it. But how is Alex? And in return, how are you? Because you're not just bass playing at this point, you're thinking about the music and the connections. Mm-hmm. At every point, somebody has to be thinking, well, are the people who like us going to like this? Or, or are you thinking, no, who cares? Initially, we're thinking, who cares? We, it really was. We were having fun, changing, exchanging ideas and having a blast. And there was no sort of, it wasn't until we got about three quarters the way through that I could feel based on some of the conversations that Alex was saying that maybe the light bulb went on, as you said, and you realized, hey, this is going to be the first thing that people are going to hear since the rushes stopped playing. So spending a lot more attention to detail on mixes and sonics and stuff like that. But the air and space that you're talking about is the ambient part of Envy of None that we love. That And we started scratching this itch, Alex and I, a mutual love of soundtrack music of people like Danny Elfman and Trevor Raven and Stuart Copeland and Mark Mothersborough, these musicians that have gone on to secondary careers writing music for film and television. We thought, hey, that would be very liberating. Yeah. No real confines or constraints. So at this point, Mitch, you have to think there's no label. There's no management. There's no producer. It's just four people like literally producing their own stuff. I had nothing left in my house until I was happy. I was like, okay, here's the seeds of an idea. I love the baseline, sending it over to everybody. When I was programming drums and playing keyboards and putting down guitar ideas that I asked Alex to replace that he reluctantly said, no, I'm going to leave it. And I joke and say, if you're listening to Envy of None, the, all of the cool guitar parts are Alex and all of the pedestrian stuff for Alf and I. Oh, come on. <laughs> what is really interesting about the project, to me at least, Andy, is, as you know, being a, not only just a fan of Rush and maybe Getty being one of the reasons I started playing bass as a young teenager, but then when I was moving into the industry, it was that cycle where I could miss two or three tours of Rush and never worry because they'll just be there next year. Like that was just the world we were in. Sure. And again, when I was very active in music journalism, Alex did Victor, which was his first solo record. So to me, there was almost like muscle memory 
to what it's like to step out and be very different because Victor was very, very different from what Rush was about as well. I think that part was like we spoke about the difference between writing with Rush and writing with Andy Vietnam. And he said to me, Andy, writing with Rush is very serious, very serious business. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine, right, with the, how intense Neil and Getty are and how big those personalities are and what Alex's role was, which I, it, when I step back, I think, okay, Alex is the glue, much like maybe Pete Townsend was with Keith Moon and Entwistle, because you have these big personalities right. that are playing very elaborate parts and very intricate, and you need somebody to hold down the fort. But with Envy of None, he said it was so casual and it was so, go ahead, here you go. Just write whatever you want. I swear to God, we would send stuff to everybody and just go put your touch on it. Maya and I spent a lot of time talking about vocals and lyrics. As a lyricist and vocalist, I would seed her. I think I've got a chorus line, like Liar is a perfect example. I think I've got a, a tagline for this, and here's some bits and pieces. The only time it's got what I would say into a co-write situation was with Maya and myself talking about lyrics and melodies. Otherwise, when it was sent over to Alex, he had the world was his oyster. He had a blank canvas to do whatever he wanted, and he said that was extremely liberating and he intentionally tried to write non-rush sounding stuff he said to me so there was parts on there on the record image where you would swear they're keyboards but they're actually alex set processing guitar like the beginning of look inside is a per the second single that we dropped this chugging little syncopated thing off the top that's all guitar it's all guitar it's all alex Lyson. we've really gone into details with this and envy of none do you is this a band with more stuff? Was this a project? Do you even know at this point? I think we like to say it's a project. And then it evolved into everybody hitting it off on a social level. I've known, I guess Maya really is the outsider to the circle because we're all Toronto boys. But right. it started to feel like a band and less of a project. And we do these Zoom calls and have drinks and laugh about it and talk about ideas and everything. It, we've always felt it was more of a project, less of a band. And you, at one point, one thing that you did ask me, at what point did it get serious? At, yeah. We got to about the sixth song point with no plan, no no plans of releasing it, doing anything with it. Alex said to me, man, this stuff is, is too good. We got to share it. And are we going to shop a deal? What are we going to do? And he said, don't you know some film supervisors and sync people? And I said, I do. He goes, why don't you send it out to them? Because the stuff feels very cinematic. He kept saying right. cinematic. So it was at that point that, that I sent out about six songs to maybe about 12 different music supervisors that I knew that do a lot of work with placing songs and film and television. And they all came back very positive. One of them came back immediately, said, I want to license it for a Netflix. I want to license Liar for a Netflix series. So it was at that point that we all felt that maybe we weren't drinking the Kool-Aid, all of us, that we actually there, this was worthy of getting out there and letting other people hear it and hope that they liked it, you know? Now let's go back in time. 1982 Coney Hatch, band that breaks out onto the scene and becomes part of the fabric of rock for sure in Canada. I want to know what happens before that. When do you first start playing the bass? When did you first find the instrument? Yeah, there's an awesome story of my very first bass guitar. You will love this. I grew up at my grandpa, Joe Kern, was a trained professional musician in England. He played in the BBC Orchestra. They used to do live recordings from Alexander Palace uh, with an orchestra 
on the radio. So the, the music that we call canned background music, they had live musicians back in the day in, in England do that. So I always grew up around music. My dad played a little bit of piano and like campfire chords and stuff. And my brothers and sisters were into music heavy. Like I, all of those early bands like the Beatles and the Monkees and the Dave Clark Five and Hermits Hermits and all of that British. How many siblings do you have, Andy? I've got uh, three brothers and two sisters. Where where do you land in the uh, six middle middle guy trying oh, to, trying to get attention? So anyway, my sisters like they they would love they had go go boots and stuff, and I would play tennis rackets. My brother and I would be the band with tennis rackets. So my first instrument was tennis racket, which is pretty easy to play. But my sister recognized how much I loved music and she constantly, she had a boyfriend that had this Rod Stewart haircut and he would constantly come around and give me these records. Here, listen to James Gang. You're going to like the James Gang. Listen to Edgar Winter and all this different stuff. So on my 16th birthday, he brings home a case for me, drops it off and says, happy birthday. You have to promise me you will never sell this. You need to learn how to play an instrument. I open it up and it's a 1967 Hofner Beetle bass. I wow. go to the one that Paul McCartney uses. So I remember it was bittersweet because now I'm a knucklehead. Now I'm listening to Aerosmith and Cheap Trick and Ted Nugent and UFO and Scorpions. And this thing's shaped like a violin. Like I wanted a flying V guitar. Sure, yeah. bass. I wanted a pointy rock stick. Guitar. Something with stripes on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that I made, I, I kept to my promise. I still have that bass. I, I used it on some of the Envy of None tracks. But, the, but fast forward, the reason I told you you would like this story is many years later, I asked my sister, where did John, his name was John Stevenson, where did he get the bass from? I was going to ask that question. Like, how did this guy who's like your sister's boyfriend drop yeah. the bass off? Like, right. it's And she said, well, you know, I never said anything to you because I didn't want mom and dad to know, but he was a drug dealer. He was selling lots <laughs> of pot. He went to collect one day. The guy didn't have the money. So he said, I'm taking the bass. It was a full repo man. He took the bass and the next day he brought it home to me. So I loved the fact that my, you know, that base had that colorful story of friends in low places. It was a repo man, a drug deal gone bad. It just truly gets this amazing historical instrument, which is now worth quite a bit of money. Yeah. Um, it, it's a I'm surprised original. Getty hasn't picked it up off you. Well, he ended up buying his own Hofters. I think he's got about three or four of them, right? But it's a really cool bass, and I love it, and I love the story. And that was dating back to when I was 16 or 17, Mitch. It's interesting because... Bass players usually start at that age. It's like always this 14 to 17 is like the prime time for someone to pick up that instrument. Mostly because I think the guitarists and drummers have been set. And so it's us on the periphery who wanted to play, who this is how I'm going to do my fill-in. <laughs> I think so. And you know what the, the other cool thing before we leave the offer, the other cool thing that, about that was the bass was hollow, right? So you, Yeah, they're I, tough I, to play. They're very tough to play, almost toy-like, but I actually, I didn't have to buy an amp for the longest time because I could hear them. So hear it, I, yeah. I could play along and, and I, I don't know how to read music. I'm, you know, I can read tab now and I know the notes on my neck, but I never took any formal training. So most of it was ear by ear. So I'd listen to, you know, a BTO song, Not Fragile, was one of the first bass lines that I learned since then. Just toiling on in my bedroom, with, but you, this, it was semi-acoustic, so you can hear it, right? wasn't until later on that I bought an amplifier and drove my parents out of the house. 
it's nice that the boyfriend slash drug dealer slash repo guy was saying, giving you this pointer of like, keep at it. Yeah. But at what point are you making a decision that I'm going to go professional? And is that already when Coney Hatch was somewhat formed or was that not even close to when you had decided I'm going pro, like this is what I'm going to be? Yeah. A lot of people, and maybe with yourself, Mitch, I think there's that defining moment where something happens. As you said, where you're like, this is it. This is my purpose in life that I'm going to be in a band and I'm going to be a musician. I went and saw the Edgar Winter Group at Maple Leaf Gardens. An unknown band called Bad Company was the opening act. Um, I was probably... You're wearing the shirt. Yeah, You're still wearing the t-shirt. Shirts. Look at you. Yeah, right? Look at that. You're representing hardcore here. Yeah. And uh, my God, at that show, dude, uh, there was the lightning strike and they were playing Frankenstein and there's mirror balls and, what a band. Lights and pot smoke everywhere. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to do that one. I want to be that guy up and want to be up on that stage one day. And it, I'm a big believer. My parents were already, always so supportive and they were like, if you can see it, if you can see yourself somewhere, if you, whether it's you want a car and you can envision yourself driving it, driving that car or you want to be on that stage, then don't ever give up. And I have to say, Mitch, not once but twice, Cody Hatch played Maple Leaf Gardens that exact same stage. For sure, yeah. Edgar Winter was on many years later, but I was like, oh, my God, like I got here, you know, so it was quite a moment or moments. How do you think of music when you think of music now? And I ask this in a really serious way. I think about your tenure with Coney Hatch. I think about what you had done solo, which was, I mean, similar, but really different. I mean, I remember hearing your solo stuff and thinking, that's not how I, to me at the time, Coney Hatch still seemed like classic rock. At that point, to me, it was already into the late 90s. You'd done work with Kim Mitchell, Soho 69. We, We can go down the list of all of these different bands, you're somebody who always seems to be at least in step with where music is at. And so here we sit in 2022 and I'm thinking back to 1982 and you're, maybe you are that cockroach that Ray Daniels (laughs) called you to be. But more importantly is you've been part of these genres. You haven't remained stale. You haven't just sat back and said, I'm going to rest on the laurels. What is it in you? That is it that you're always exploring new artists? Is it that you're just bored with things as they were? Do you know where that characteristic comes from in you? If you took it all away today and you said no more playing bass, no more professional musician, and just I would still I, at the core of it, Mitch is an avid music fan. I love discovering new music. I've still got a very kept all of my vinyl from when I started collecting it. My wife is like, do you really need all those CDs? I'm like, yes, I do. On that ride from Coney Hatch all the way here, I was always consuming music, whether it be when my, when I started to lean a little bit more alternative, when I was listening to King's X and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and all those different bands. He was a favorite of mine and starting to go, wow, what's the, and like the alternative rock thing really captured then later on with drug plan and leisure world started listening to rammstein and nine inch nails and getting back into depeche mode but it's the fanboy in me that is constantly tame impala one of my favorite new bands absolutely love them went to see them they're like a modern day stoner gen z pink floyd i think they're fantastic so i love and even some finding someone like maya Wynn. that's so rewarding to be able to find new talent 
Um, but it's the music fan in me, I think, that keeps things fresh. And as a bass player, you just don't want to be doing the same thing over and over again. It's like getting up. Do you want to eat the same breakfast every day and wear the same clothes? No. you got to keep it fresh. And do you think in the same way of your bass playing as you do with that philosophy of music? Has your playing changed as you get older, as you think about parts differently, as you have just more tread on the tire, basically? Do you yeah, think yeah. about the bass differently? That's a great question. And I can tell you that my friend Greg Godovitz from the band Gotto. Gotto, yeah, Greg. He and, he and I argue about, because somebody said to me, Andy, you're the Earl of Eight Notes. You played more <laughs> Eight Notes than anybody. And I said, no, Greg Godovitz has played more. <laughs> the guy at ACDC. Yeah. Yeah, I said, those guys have played way more Eight Notes than me. So if you listen to, the, to that journey, I would tell you, yes, I'm constantly trying to be a better bassist. I'm, uh, not that I'm trying to emulate somebody like Eddie Lee or Chris Squire or Jacko or, or um, Stanley Clark, but I love those types of bass players. And I've studied them. And I, if you would just say to me, Andy, play school days or play silly putty, I could play you those, but I don't play like that. But, I, but I'm right. so intrigued by trying to lift intricate bass parts. I'd say with Rush and Chris Squire, I love stretching, but on the bass playing right i would think mitch that i kind of opened up a bit yes there is that roots of eight notes and they're still there on the mdm nun record but i yeah, played sure. a lot more analog mode bass on the new stuff i started thinking what would this keyboard what would this bass line sound like with a keyboard because i really yeah. like i really like some of the bg stuff jive talking and the synthesizer stuff and edgar winter did it too Getty Lee gave me a fretless bass. I started playing fretless just to work on my intonation. I have a beautiful custom shop Fender relic Jacko Pastorius bass that Getty gave me as a gift. And I played that. Lots of stories with that bass and Getty, because I know yeah. he has a fretted one. And that's like a big, that was a big thing in the business. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do try to push it a little bit. And if anything, my collection has grown. I've got them, I think, between guitars and basses, heavily bass slanted. I probably got about 22 now. And I would say that maybe oh. 18 or 19 of those are different basses, different tones, different strokes of the paintbrush. And they all sound different. So I try to approach it going, which bass would sound good on this track, which is why I popped out the old Hoffner because it's got that thuddy, yeah. um, that thuddy warm feeling with when I flat my nylon strings on it. So I do try to, I don't know, stretch a little bit. What is the near future for you? There's envy of none. You're still handling this aspect business wise of, of rush. Mm -hmm. Coney hatch still happening. Solo stuff still happening. What fills the bucket for Andy Kern these days? Well, I guess you could say maybe I'm guilty of being a bit ADD because I have too many things going on, but certainly front and center is envy of none. Really looking forward to the album. Alex and I joked about we should have a disclaimer on it. It's not Russian. It's not really <laughs> yeah. much. So yeah. don't, you know, that I, I open your ears, open your ears, experiment yeah. a little. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I stopped reading stuff because for the most part, the comments were really good, but then there's other guys who are like, this is crap. This is not yeah. like to be expected. Like, yeah. Go ahead. Listen to your yeah. old Rush records and We've already started writing Envy of None ideas for Envy of None 2, and we'll see when and if that happens. We recorded some live shows with Coney Hatch last time we were out a couple of years ago before the pandemic. So we've got a live in Ludwigsburg performance, which is pretty cool that we're mixing and mastering. We did two new studio tracks that we're going to release. We've got a couple, handful of shows with Coney Hatch. And then on the solo stuff, that record that I call it my No Tattoos record, that, I think it was the 30th anniversary last year. So somebody said, well, why don't you do like a 
commemorative anniversary of the No Tattoos oh, cool. record. So I started digging around and looking in my banker's boxes of old demos and stuff. So I might release some kind of a little mini celebration of that record and just trying to keep busy, Mitch. And, and of course, the stuff with Rush and Getty and Alex on the business side, I'm looking forward to, to that stuff too. Great. So many great stories, Andy. I can't thank you enough for your time. Let people know where they can find out more about Envy of None and just your stuff in general. Yeah, the envyofnone.com is where you can pretty much find everything. And there's links to the store that just opened and, and the two videos that we've done for the first couple singles. For the Andy Curran and, uh, stuff, it's andycurranmusic.com. There's some photos dating back to... Great stuff on the site. Yeah. yeah. And my youngest daughter, Maggie, is helping me with my social media because I'm a complete idiot when it comes to that. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. The official Andy Kern is where the Instagram stuff is and she keeps making sure that all the news, the fresh news is up there. It's been a fun ride, Mitch, and really good to connect with you again. And thank you so much for the time today. And I love the name of the podcast, No Trouble, because there's no <laughs> room for trouble here. Let's retire baseball. Well as we get older, I've run into friends who I went to high school with, or I've known a long time and you go for coffee and you catch up and there's this immediate feeling of not just familiarity, but almost family. And I think I told you this before recording is I could not see you for decades, but still just feel that right. from when we first connected and just all the connections through the years. So I can't tell you how much it's fun to always see your new stuff and just appreciate your time, Andy. Well, you're very welcome, Mitch, and I feel the same way. And Mitch, Joel, and Montreal, there's no way you can <laughs> I can go there without seeing you or trying to find you or go get, see if we can get some poutine together. <laughs> we will make it happen, Andy. Thanks for your time. Cheers, man. You're welcome. Uh...